Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Off the Beat and Track Podcast. I'm Stu Ifin, your host. And today's episode is a cracker. Um Thankfully, the guys at the book club in Shoreditch let me head down there and use their space to record. And I got to record with a bit of a legend. Uh, label owner, former venue owner. He's he's done the lot. It's, it's Mr. Eddie Piller, uh, main man of Acid Jazz Records, um, owner of Blue Note. Just done so much cool stuff. And it was a real pleasure to, to catch up with Eddie I had met him before um, and, and had a chat, but this time it was really good to sort of sit down and, and have a coffee and, and find out the music that has soundtracked his, his life today. And he was, um, he was so informative. I learned so much from chatting to him. And it's, that's one of the really nice things I like about these podcasts is uh, you sort of get to know, you know, a different side of some of these people that you, you know, you see in the papers or you're on the radio, etc. And, uh, Eddie's just a, a wealth of knowledge of music and it's it's nice to tap into that. So I'm gonna shut up and, and, and get on with it so you can you can dive straight in. Um occasionally you may hear the toilet flush in the book club because the, the little room that we was in was next to the toilet, so uh bear that in mind. Um big thanks to seventy six for producing this. Thanks to my name is Adam Bradacton for doing the artwork and the video stuff. And big thanks to everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. So, yes, also remember, if you're listening to this on Acast or iTunes, you can now listen to Off The Beat and Track podcasts on Spotify. It's all over there now, so you can listen if you've got Spotify, if that makes life easier for you. Oh, and we have a Patreon account. Um, we have a website, www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com why not go over there it's got links to our Patreon page to all the different social media pages to the Spotify link so you can hear the playlists of the artists as well as the interviews and we've got merchandise so you can go over there and look at all the cool tees and stuff like that so go and get stuck in over there um, that's me done I'll catch up with you at the end but for now enjoy it off the beaten track podcast with the wonderful Mr. Eddie Pillar. It's off the beaten track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Well, we're recording. We're at the book club in Shoreditch uh, for an episode of Off the Beaten Track, and my guest today is Mr. Eddie Pillar. Hello. You all right? Yeah, fine. Good, good, good. Um, I've met you once before, Eddie, and it was in here. Um, we had a we had a 
cup of tea and we, we spoke about different ideas for DJing and that it was probably about two or three years ago now. Mm. So I appreciate you making it and coming down today. You've had a bit of a, a mare getting here to our mission from Harlow or East London. But we're here to discuss music and your creative journey to date. Yep. So I always start this podcast with the way that you should start any playlist, which is with the song with the greatest intro. Can you remember what you've gone for? Yeah. Um, you could have had a couple of choices here. And, and the reason I, I answered, I'm a soul DJ, right? I've been playing soul music for a living since 1981. Sometimes jazz, sometimes funk, occasionally hip hop, Latin, but fundamentally I'm a soul DJ. And yet, I decided to answer your questions with giving the matter no thought whatsoever. Just saying the first thing that came into my head when I read the question. And consequently, thinking back about my selections, I don't think I've chosen a single soul record. Which just goes to show how the music that influences you as a young person can stay in your mind forever. Almost in your subconscious mind. So, the greatest intro, I think, belongs to um, a song written by Pete Townsend. The Who's first single, which is called I Can't Explain. And um, it's just such a powerful introduction. So perfect. And the lyrics are so great. It's just, you know, it's, the riff is just off the scale. It's got a great sense of urgency, anyway. It just kicks in with a, a bit of a statement. And I think it's. Uh, Do you want to pick that up? <laughs> I don't know what that was. I think the chair just broke there. Oh, dear. But. Um, as your first single, that's a pretty big statement, isn't it? Well, it's not the first single I got. I think you asked me that later on. Yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah. In the... Um, I meant the first single from The Who. Well, it wasn't actually their first single because their first single was released under the name of The High Numbers uh, about nine months earlier when they were managed by Peter Meadham. But their name, of course, then uh, was The High Numbers and the single was called I'm The Face. And so, you know, I think the realism... When The Who started, or when Pete Meadon took over the reins of The Who, he wanted them to be an out-and-out -out mod band. So that first single, under the name of High Numbers, is an R&B record, completely ripped off of a 60s R&B record with lyrics about being a mod down at the scene club. And it's a fabulous record, but I think after Meadon left and they became managed by Lambert and Stamp, they realised that they had to kind of create their own sound, which wasn't just a, a, a shameful shameless copying of American R&B. And, um, you know, it's a totally mod song. It's out and out mod, but it's not mod in the way the High Number single was, which was R&B. It's mod in their own image. Lyrics about being a mod. You know, the first three singles that Who put out are just a perfect mod trilogy, but they carried right on until 1967 with I Can See For Miles. You know, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, My Generation, uh, Can't Explain, uh, substitute, uh, those are all absolute classic mod singles about being a mod. That's why it's a perfect intro for me. Okay, so have you got any, was there any other considerations? I know you said you just fired that one straight from the hip, but was there any others, you know, in, in the day since you sent the list over and maybe you've given it any more no, thought? I've given it no more thought whatsoever because I thought the only way I could answer these questions in an honest and realistic way you know I always get asked to do my top 10 for magazines or for websites or whatever and it's always completely different because I never am thinking about the same records ever I mean I've only got three or four con constant artists 
in my life. And they are Gil Scott Heron, Leroy Hudson, the Small Faces, and probably the Style Council. And those are the kind of four bands that have shaped my life. But, you know, <laughs> different things pop into my mind. And I've just been writing a documentary, which is come for Sky Arts next year, on Quadrophenia to celebrate its 40th anniversary. And so I've been involved in uh, interviewing the likes of Sting, uh, Ray Winston, uh, Phil Daniels, Phil Davis, you know, all those people. And um, consequently, that whole period, the Quadrophenia period, is in my mind. So obviously, that's why I can't explain Jump Ten. But it's just such a great riff. Yeah. Da, 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 you know. So I also heard on, uh, on the modcast, uh, the, the podcast that you do, um, you interviewed. Spider? Was he saying Spider in the, in the film? Uh, Gary Shale. Yeah. Gary Shale, yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's in the documentary as well. Oh, right, yeah. He's the one with the funniest stories, actually. I think he's the one that's been most honest in being interviewed by, by us. Uh, I didn't actually conduct the interviews, I wrote the questions. Oh, okay. The interviews and the director did the, uh, did the actual question. Yeah. Um, but it's been a great experience. I've written for Phil Daniels. Phil Daniels is the narrator of the programme as well. And I've written for him before. I've written scripts for him before, actually. Uh, that's something that I do increasingly more at the moment. Um, I write TV documentaries, and I've just got my first drama in development, which is a six-part drama series set in Northern Ireland. So I'm writing more and more at the moment. Yeah. You travelled out, if I remember rightly, correct me if I'm wrong, Eddie, you took your scooter out to Northern Ireland in the Early to mid eighties. I remember you talking to early eighties. Who was you? Who did you have on the modcast when you was discussing this? No, I don't think it was on the modcast. I did a podcast interview. I, I, I think behind the music it was called or something like that in Leeds uh, once, where I told for the first time the story of how I nearly came a cropper with the IRA this was in nineteen eighty three. Yeah. yeah, that was um, that was an interesting experience. Yeah, going from. Dublin to Belfast to Bangor, actually, which is right on the north coast, uh, on my Vespa, and stopping twice in the middle to DJ, but staying in Cross Maglen in South Armagh with a friend of mine, uh, a pen friend, and obviously I was not quite as aware of the politics of Northern Ireland as I am now, so it was an experience, and one I wouldn't want to repeat. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, well, look, we're going to get on to track two, which is the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. No idea what I said this was. You said, oh, I'm stoned by the faces. Okay, it's not by the faces, by the small faces. Uh, the reason I chose this is um, it's a song that's played a large part of my life and emotional development. The small faces did... My mother did the small faces fan club, and um, I grew up being bounced on Steve Merritt's knee as a child. Uh, when she passed away in January, that was the music that was played at a funeral, which wow. was very emotional and lots of people cried. It is a beautiful song and perfect to be played at a funeral. Yeah. And I think the Small Faces have been a large part of the musical influences on my life. And, you know, I got to know Marriott quite well before he died. And I also... Uh, well, I got to know all of them. I, I, I still know Kenny Jones because he's still with us, you know. Mm -hmm. He's the last one left alive. So, whereabouts was you born, Eddie? I was born in Woodford. I was actually born in Leytonstone, but uh, I spent my early life in Woodford. My dad's from Bethnal Green, my mum's from Tottenham. Um, 
And when I was born, my dad was running a couple of betting shops in the East End of London, uh, based in Manor Park, which was next to the Small Faces pub where they used to rehearse, called the Ruskin Arms on, yep. on in, uh, High Street North, Manor Park, right next or East Town, depending on where you think the border lies. Um, yeah. So you said that your mum run the fan club. So was there, I'll take it there was always music on at home as a kid. Well, not as much as you would think. And I think this is the thing about the difference between this generation and the generation born around the war time, right? Okay. When they got to kind of 20, youth culture was kind of put in the box. My dad was a mod, a jazz mod. My mum was a, more of a, she's a little bit, a couple of years younger than my dad, so she was a little bit of a younger mod. And, um, you know, but by the time my dad's 21, he's running a couple of shops and, you know, he's sold the scooter and he's knuckled down to work. Yeah. So whilst there was music on in my house, it, it didn't pay a massive part in my development. Although I am on the front cover of the US release uh, called There Are But Four Small Faces, as well as the sheet music for Ichiku Park and the European picture cover for Ichiku Park. With, with three other young boys holding an Ichiku Park road sign, which was taken by Gerard Mankiewicz in, in 1967, when I was four. And um, that's quite a big thing if you're a mod, yeah, to be on the front cover of the Small Faces record, you know, it's pretty cool. So, when, when did you sort of start to sort of, like even when you were hearing these, this, this music at home, you were hearing, you know, Small Faces and such, was you, was you struck by the, the way they looked, you know? Was, was, was no, that on the radar yet? Yeah, was you deconstructing the music? Was you obsessing about the music? Not at all, nothing like that. Um, my dad was into jazz, so I was always hearing jazz. That influenced me a lot growing up. Um, my mother was probably more into kind of poppy kind of stuff. A lot of Simon and Garfunkel was played in our house. Mm -hmm. um, but I think my connection with the small faces, really, because obviously as a four-year-old, you don't remember anything about yeah, cool. you know, I didn't remember being on the front cover until Gerald Mankiewicz told me, the photographer. And uh, um, I, uh, I think when I was 11, my mum, my dad bought my mother a small faces greatest hits album that came out on Immediate in the late 70s, in the mid 70s. And, um, you know, I picked it up, we were playing it, and my dad said, you know, your mother used to run the fan club. So that was the first time I realised there was a connection. I didn't know. Right. Then I got to see the photos of me with Marriott, and then she went, he bought you that, and then she showed me the two stuffed alligators that the small faces are on, a picture of them holding these alligators on Leeds in Carnaby Street as if they were alive, yeah. and we had them in my house until my father threw them away because they got a bit grubby looking in yeah. about 1978. Can you imagine how much they'd be worth Jeez. now? That pictured with the small faces, anyway. So, yeah, it wasn't really until I became a mod that I realised how important the small faces were in okay. the 60s. And that was nothing to do with the small faces. That was down at the Buzzcocks and the Jam, you know, yeah. when I was 14. All right, well, that, that, <coughs> that sort of ties us in nicely at the third track, which is where I ask you that the song that reminds you of your school days. and. Uh, I'm sure we'll get on to the buscocks, but you did actually go for I'm Stranded by the Saints. So, yeah. how was school? Do you enjoy school? Yeah, I loved it. I, I, uh, I got asked to leave 
school, but I was almost at the end. I was, I was allowed to come back and take my O-levels, but I didn't want to ever stay on in school. By this time, I decided I wanted to work in a record company and run, a, you know, be a music empresario. So my, how, how did that mindset come about? I'll tell you exactly how. It's, it's, a, it's a story that's in Martin Bolfi, which is coming out next year. Um, basically, what happened was I wanted to be an actor, and I got the role in a school play, which was um, a, a Royal Shakespeare Company junior production, written by a guy called Robert Bolt, who wrote The Lion in Winter. It was a very big British playwright in the 60s and 70s. And uh, I got cast as the lead in this play. He came down to see the play because it was he was about to do another pre, uh, another Shakespeare version. Well, Shakespeare. Yeah. It was, it was a comedy set in the Middle Ages, basically. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed the experience. And he came up, you know, as this great man. And mum's going, wow, you know, he wrote this and that, and he's fantastic. So, and he was very effusive in his praise. And he said that I absolutely had to consider acting as a career. I suppose I was 13. And, um, but how was that at school? Because, you, you know, you went to school in Essex, I imagine. Yeah, Chigwell. And so, but were the teachers encouraging of anything creative like that? Uh, it was after school clubs. There right, was, right, it, okay. It wasn't like curriculum, or you got drama on the curriculum, yeah. or music, or anything like that. If you wanted to do it, you had to stay after school and, and yeah. do it. So I tried, I enjoyed it, I found I enjoyed it. And so this left me um, buzzing, actually, and thinking, wow, that's fantastic, standing up in front of 300 people, and the press taking pictures and everything. It's quite a big thing. And... Um, so the next year on the school play, I got cast in a Shakespeare play called Midsummer Night's Dream as um, Puck. Um, and I thought, I'm really into this. So I, I started rehearsals. And about three weeks before the play, I got chickenpox. And chickenpox as a 14-year-old is not a great look. No. <laughs> and um, especially downstairs, um, <laughs> where it swells things up quite enormously. Um, however, I wasn't allowed to go to school for six weeks. And this uh, broke my heart because I was in the pl school play. It's not the lead, but it's a big part in, in Midsummer Night's Dream. And um, my mum's friend, Yvonne, used to work as a PA at EMI Records. And uh, she knew that I was at home, bored. And so she bought me a box home, big box of promos, EMI Records. Mainly albums like Queen, Rolling Stones... Uh, the yachts, I remember, were there. But uh, Elton John, kind of mainstreamy kind of stuff. But in the box was a few singles, and one of them was this Harvest 45 by The Saints. And I've been making my way through the albums. You know, every kind of ten minutes, I put another track on, and you know, and nothing. It was all nice. I really liked Some Girls by The Rolling Stones. I thought it was a fantastic record. Miss You. Um, and then I put The Saints on. Fuck me, it blew my head off. I thought, this is it. Forget about all that crap. Chuck yeah. that in the bin. What's this about? And so, you know, I started listening to John Peel. And this is about 90s, early 1978, I suppose. Yeah. And um, I just got more and more into punk. Started saving money from my Saturday job. Went to see a band called Television, who were over from America. Big punk big American art rock punk yep. band with Richard Hell and uh, Tom Verlaine in and I really liked them 
And so I started buying sounds. And from sounds, I realized there's a shop near where my Saturday job was, which was Mr. Byright's in Walthamstow. There was a record shop called Small Wonder in there. And I walked in one day and said to this hippie bloke called Pete, who was behind the desk, he, you know, he, I was nervous and shy, looking through the records. Believe it or not, I was actually shy in those days. And um, he goes, what are you looking for? I said, well, um, have you got any television? Because I knew I, I was waiting to go to this gig. Yeah. I'd got tickets to this gig at the Hammersmith Odeon or whatever it was. Huh? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. What else? And I knew Subway Set were supporting them. So I said, oh, what about Subway Set? Yeah, I've got this 45 by them. So he bought out a few singles. And, I, and he goes, and if you like that, you'll like this. So I left the shop with a bag of 15 punk singles. Beat on the Brat by the Ramones and uh, the Stranglers. I can remember half of that first package. And from that point on, me and my mate Tristan, and my other eight, Richard Habley, uh, used to go on the bus to Walthamstow at least once a week. You'd walk in, Pete would give you a little bag with your name on it, with like four or five singles that come out that week. You'd give him your £2.80 or whatever, because singles were only 79p, sometimes 53p in those days. I started building up a really big punk collection, the Fall. But, but the record that changed everything for me was The Saints. And that stayed with me forever. I got a Saturday, uh, with my Saturday and holiday jobs, before I got full-time employment, I saved up every penny I could at the age of 17. I just got my first job, actually. Uh, I went to Australia to follow the Saints on a tour, and I saw them six or seven times. And, um, and how old was you then? 17. Fucking hell. But they were the best, I thought they were the best band ever. Yeah. And unfortunately for me, the guy I really liked in the band was the bass player called Kim Bradshaw, and he'd left. And they'd been, he'd been placed by an English bass player called Algernon Ward, who was in the Damned. Right. And Kim Bradshaw had gone over to England, and unbeknownst to me, because he cut all his hair off, he was a bass player in a mod band that I used to go and see called Small Hours. And then gradually all these little threads started coming together, and I realised that punk, mod, revival, you know, it was all kind of linked. And, uh, yeah, so that's what that record did for me. It changed my life 100%. OK, and so... In regards to, to, to how you decided that you wanted to maybe not be an actor and, and, and become more involved in music, um, was that just bred out of that kind of connection you got going into record shops and, and, and developing a collection and thinking, you know... Well, was you a musician? Could you play or did you just I, I, I played drums, keyboards and bass at various stages, not very well. I was in one band called The Shapes from Loughton in Essex uh, with a few other guys um, that was playing keyboards we used to cover for your love by the yardbirds um, which <laughs> that's about all i remember yeah. we had a few few of our own songs weren't very good never did a gig yeah um but i think i remember the difference between rough trade we once went to rough trade. i went to, twice went to rough trade walked in and the difference between rough trade and small wonder was rough trade were seemed a lot posher and a lot less interested in you and a lot more patronising towards you. You're a bit too young. Why would you be interested in their thing? You know yeah. what I mean? Whereas Small Wonder was completely opposite. And the attitude of Hippie Pete virtually obsessed me with music. The fact they set up their own little record label, which had, in six months had signed the Angelic Upstarts, Bauhaus, Crass, um, loads and loads Fucking of... Fucking hell. Oh, God, a lot more than that, but off the top of my head, I can't yeah. remember. I mean, really important, the Cortinas, Patrick Fitzgerald, really important bands, and they'd done it out of this one-room shop in Walthamstow, 
And he, he, he was a hippie, he wasn't even a punk. Yeah. And so this really inspired me and I decided... What Did that was, make you think that it was, it was possible? Yeah, yeah. As, yeah. as soon as I left school in 1980, I tried very hard to get a job in the music industry as a 16, 17-year-old. It was very, very difficult. Um, in fact, I grew up with, as best friends with the Kerbishley's children. Now, Bill Kerbishley and his wife Jackie uh, managed The Who and uh, Steve Gibbons' band with Pete Meaden and a few other bands. And they knew my mum and dad vaguely from the 60s because The Who, you yeah. know, Bill was part of the Cannon Town mods and my dad was East Ham. So she got me a few job interviews at Polydor and I didn't get the interviews and I didn't give up at that stage. But I'll tell you how I got my first job, right? I'm standing on... Uh, by now I'd been looking... I'd gone to college for a couple of terms to do business management because I thought that might help with a yeah. record company. And I just realised that the people at the college knew less about anything than I did. Certainly less about business. They were lecturers who weren't interested in business, even yeah. though they'd washed up on the shores of a business studies course. They were more interested in politics, yeah. as a lot of lecturers were at the time. And so, on the way back from a Purple Hearts gig, somewhere in, in the West End, it might have been at Global Village or something, I met a mod, an Italian mod, English-Italian, who was from Soho, and he worked in the Labour Exchange in Wardour Street. Now, this is where the independent record labels, and the major record labels advertised for their runners in that Labour Exchange. So I gave him a fiver, which was a lot of money in those days for, for a stranger, said, listen, when you put the card up in the wall, just give me a ring the day before you do it, please, if there's any jobs come up in a record company. And I didn't hear anything for two months. I thought, oh, I've lost the fiver. Yeah. One day, I get home from college or wherever I was, my mum's gone, some bloke called Luigi's phoned. What, Italian? No, Cockney. So what do you want? Well, he wants you to phone him on this number tonight. So I phone him, he goes, got a job for you. Uh, working for an independent record label in Pall Mall called Avatar Records. Don't worry, I've ripped the card up. So I went for the interview. I was strangely the only one who applied. So I got, I got the job and that was it. I was up and running and I've never been, you know, I've never want, needed a job in music since. Best five you ever spent, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder what he's doing now. I don't think his name is Luigi. I think it's probably Paolo, to yeah. be perfectly honest. <laughs> Luigi was the first Italian name that came into my head. But I was very lucky to get that job off him. All right, so I'm going to sort of go back a little bit again. Um, <coughs> probably this is, I imagine, looking at the, the, the record choice you've gone for, it's before the, obviously before the punk days and stuff, which is why I ask um, the guests to pick the first record that they ever went out and bought. I would guess from, from the fact that it is the first record I went out and bought my own money yeah. was a single called Young Girl Get Out of My Life by Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. Yeah. Now, I've thought back about this, and this must have been a hit, because they were a mod band, pretty right. moddy, if okay. you see the, you know, the pictures of them. But I'm wondering why I bought this in the early 70s, you know, because I must have been about eight, mm. you know, and it would have been a hit three or four years earlier in the late oh, 60s. Right, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering if it had been reissued or anything like that. But I remember it very specifically. I really liked it. I still like it to this day. And I just don't know, although it's got very dubious lyrics. It really has, hasn't it? If you see the video, it's even more dubious. No way. Is there a video for there it? There is a video, black and white video. Uh, and they do really have a young girl yeah. dancing in the video. who's probably borderline yeah. 17 years old, yeah. you know. But, of course, when you're 12 or 10, you don't think of... And also, obviously, it wasn't quite the world we live in now. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, 
but it was, it's just a great pop record. It's a brilliant pop record. Yeah, and it was on Orange CBS, if I'm correct, from the top of my head. It, it, it really did get stuck in my head. And yeah. I, hadn't, I remember I got pocket money, I got six shillings a week, which was quite a lot of money. Um, was quite a lot of money for, a, you know, my age. And um, I think that's 30p yeah. now, which would probably be the equivalent of about three quid a week at this point in time. Do you remember where you bought it? Yeah, I bought it at Broadway Records in Woodford. Right. At Woodford Broadway by the station, which was walking distance from my house. Yeah. Okay. I felt quite grown up going in and buying it. In fact, it was an exotic record shop with records by Curved Air and, you know, all, all these kind of early 70s kind of psychedelic proggy yeah. jazz records that are still, you know, like um, Tangerine Dream and Yes and bands yeah. like that, quite big at, at the time. So, in, in regards to, you know, you, you spoke about Eric you know, really built your thirst for creativity and music, going into, you know, them independent record shops and, and you know, finding... In them places, you'd find like-minded people and, yep. you know, you'd find people that would go, oh, if you like that, you like that, as you said. I mean, I know that a lot of the scenes that you're, you know, you're, you're involved with, Eddie, still does have independent shops that specialise in music like that. But Hardly. Do, do you... But on the grander scheme of things, you know, for like, you know, kids that are into indie music want to go and buy indie sort of records and that, you know, rough trade aside, do you think it's a massive loss that them, them kind of environments don't really exist? Look, you know, this is quite a revolutionary comment from someone like me, but I tell you what, there's been a culture shift and young people couldn't give a monkeys about music. They're not interested. And I'll tell you why. If you listen to pop music on the radio, which is all you're going to hear, with the exception of Six Music... It's awful. If I get in a taxi that's playing heart or magic or... <laughs> no, you can't... Because sometimes you can't avoid it. Yeah. This awful... It's like nursery rhyme lyrics, nursery rhyme melody, no production values. It's just shocking. Hip-hop's even worse now. You know, there's very, very... I mean, Kendrick Lamar's all right, but apart from that, there's... You know, I've fallen out of love with all contemporary music. Um... So, you know, a young person, what do they want to hear? What do they want to go in a record shop for? You know, they're probably gaming online or, you know, or, I don't know, taking drugs. Who knows what they do, young people, because it's not my world. And consequently, it's a massive loss. It's a cultural loss. But I, that's the way it is. You know, we can't turn the clock back, even though I'm living in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, we, you know, it's up to them what they do. If record shops had still been there, would they still be interested? No, because, you know, the record companies didn't help themselves at the time. You know, CDs came out, something that cost 50p to make, 35p to make at the time, and they're selling them for 15 quid. Yeah. What do they expect, you know? It's going to bite you on the arse, isn't it? Of course it is. Yeah. CD now in the shop, 7 99 Yeah. But 25 years ago, they were 15 quid. How's that work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thing is, though, if you go to a record shop now, you go to HMV to buy an album on vinyl, it was probably seven ninety nine back then, and now that's fifteen ninety nine. Well, it's more than fifteen ninety nine. Yeah. You know, the average price of an album is twenty two quid. But I have to say, I'm glad it is because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be. Here. Yeah. You know, the fact that we've always had a strong, loyal vinyl buying yeah. customer base at Acid Jazz means that yeah. we're still. You know, I just released an album, Eddie Peller and Martin Freeman present Jazz on the Corner, which done. Uh, about 10,000 copies, of which probably 6,000 were double vinyl at 25 quid. Saved nice. my arse, you know? Yeah. That's very good sales. Although, you know, 
Now, that's what I call rubbish, volume 907, yeah. same week of release, sold 55,000 week one, we sold about seven or 8,000. Just shows you the disparity between specialist music and pop music, because yeah. there is still a market for pop music. I don't know who buys it, yeah. I don't know who listens to it, and to be honest, I would, I'm not interested. Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there... I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. After the next question, uh, your next track, I, I want to start discussing Acid Jazz. And, yep. uh, and um, I'll, I'll discuss Blue Note as well. And uh, But yeah, I'll, for, for track five... Um, I want to know the, the, the song that soundtracked your, your year's clubbing. Now, I guess for most people when I ask this, they, they generally kind of pick a time, you know, in their what is it, 18 to early 20s of clubbing, but you've, you've been a club DJ and, 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 you know, venue owner and such for, for many, many years. So, so, when's, so when you chose this as, as the song that soundtracked your year's clubbing, when are you... So when did that take you back there to? could only be one track uh, I've had this I've had my copy it's not an expensive record I've had my copy stolen out of our box probably three times and from the day I heard it I went out and bought it the next day and it, it probably until last year my final copy got nicked yeah. it had never been out of my box ever since I played it every gig I ever did and it's called uh, Is It Something She's Got by Tyrone Davis and the reason I chose this is I was a mod Northern Soul DJ. I was at the Royal Oak in Tooley Street, and one of the security said, uh, here, you want to come down tomorrow? They're playing your kind of stuff. And at this point in time, I'd really had enough of the mod scene. The music hadn't moved on uh, from when, you know, three or four years earlier when I was playing. This was about 85. Right. And um, the bouncer said, you want to come down tomorrow? There's some bloke called Giles Peterson on. Tomorrow, he played, I reckon you'd like it. So we go down there. Sure enough, we do like it. It was Kev Beadle and Giles Peterson doing the small one in the special branch. And from that point on, I left the mod scene and moved into soul and jazz properly. Right? I mean, I was playing soul music, but I was playing northern soul music to mods, whereas what I heard in the special branch was everything from 50s, mambo, right the way through to jazz funk, like um, expansions and yeah. southern freeze, you know. And so this was just mind-blowing. Downstairs they had, I suppose at the time it was Go-Go, the Washington pre-Rare yep. Groove, pre-house scene, uh, and Rare Groove from DJs like Judge Jules, Roy De Roach, uh, Pete Tot, you know, people, the main players yeah. of the house scene, but this yep. was before house. Mm -hmm. So Special Branch used to do amazing gigs, do at the zoo, do at the rink, do at the this, that and the other, you know, the, the dinosaur room at the Natural History Museum. I mean, they were amazing events run by Nicky Holloway with some of the best DJs in the world, you know, and uh, all these DJs were playing 
our kind of music mixed up, usually in two rooms, but not always. And uh, there was a gig at Stratham Ice Rink. And so we went along, and I'm on the ice rink, because as a kid, I used to go ice skating in Queensway, because it's right on the central line. You get there quite easily every, you know, two or three times a week, cheap entertainment for a 12-year-old boy, yeah. you know. So we all used to go up there. And so I was skating around, and then uh, Chris Bangs, who's a major influence musically in my life, played Is It Something She's Got, Tyrone Davis. And uh, I just had to stop and go, what the fuck is this? This is it. It's like got everything I wanted from the past, but it's something I've never heard at a tempo that didn't get played. And so when your question was, you know, what year, what track, you know, uh, illustrated your year's clubbing, people would expect, you know, a house record. Yeah. Or, you know, or um, I just went for the record that kind of changed everything for me. And it hadn't, as I said, until I had my last copy next, it hadn't been out of my box. It became my signature tune. And uh, it's still... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Record today, it's probably on our tenor. It's yeah. such a brilliant, brilliant record. There you go. So as a, as a young lad, like going out, what did you want from clubbing? Girls drink and like-minded people. When I was running a... My first big night was from about end of 1981. Me and a guy called Ray used to run the Regency Suite on a Friday night in Ilford, in Essex. And uh, it's funny, because we were doing a night at the Ilford Working Men's Club, which held 100 people on a Tuesday night... DJing or promoting? DJing and promoting. Because yeah. we couldn't find anyone to give us gigs, yeah. you know. The mod scene was a bit of a closed shop in terms of DJs that were all basically based in the West End or South London. Yeah. And there was no one doing it in East London. So me and Ray thought we'd do it ourselves. We hired Ilford Working Men's Club. They laughed at us. What, you get 50 kids in here on a, on a Tuesday night? He said, yeah. And we did, within three weeks. And then it wasn't big enough. So... We knew of the Regency Suite up the road. We went to see the manager. He said, all right, I'll give you Monday nights. All right, okay, fine. We did Monday nights. 
We got the door, uh, he got the bar, and um, within a month, there were queues outside, there was 100 scooters outside every Monday, and, uh, and then he goes, well, look, you know, do you want to do Fridays as well? But I don't want you to stop Mondays. So for a, quite a while, we did two nights a week in the same club, both full up. People came from all over the south of England on scooters from, like, Southampton, let alone from South End. That was just down the road, you yeah. know. So it was quite an extraordinary time. Very famous DJ did Saturday nights called Froggy. I mean, it was one of the main jazz funk clubs. in yeah. Ilford was the home of the British soul boy, you know, at that time, Lacey Lady. Lacey Lady, yeah. And, oh, and South End, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I can remember we used to go to Zero Six. So we mixed mod with jazz funk because yeah. it was a natural thing to do, you know. Um, but we were very, very successful at the Regency Suite. And so within three months, BBC had contacted us and said, look, we, you know, we've heard great things about your club. Can we come down and make a documentary about it? So they did, which before my ego got out of raging, out of control, um, I refused to be in. And so Ray's in it, and you see Ray getting ready to go to the club yeah. and on his scooter and all the rest of it, getting dressed, putting his suit on everything. And I didn't want to be in it. Why not? Well... I wanted to keep in the background. I was a bit shy then. Yeah. So I wanted to keep in the background. But obviously, I tell you what, bred, out, bred that out of me, radio. But anyway, that's another story. So, and it, it became a massive hit. And then we started doing, by the time I was 17, we started hiring the Ilford Palais, which held 1,500 people. I was too young to sign the contract, so my dad had to sign the contract. I mean, imagine taking your dad down to meet the manager of the Ilford Palais to sign the contract because you weren't 18. Therefore, you were legally not allowed to sign the contract. I mean, that's... Without blowing smoke up your ass, mate, that's, that's impressive to be doing that at 17 years of age. Do you know what I mean? And it's sold out three times a year. <laughs> that's ridiculous, isn't it? Like, so, but at this, this age already, is, is your mind in gear? Are you focusing on, right, well, I want to do this now? I want, I no, want I'm focusing on having a crack. You're right. I mean, we were just kids. Yeah. Drinking 12 pints a night. You yeah. Know? It was quite bizarre. But you must have been making a few nick about this as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's all right, isn't it, at 17 years of age? Uh, well, it bought me a few scooters, put it that way. Yeah. Um, you know, but then I started managing bands. You know, the next stage was managing bands. Okay. So I managed, you know, the biggest band on our scene at the time. You know, and then, and then I got the job at the record label, so that taught me everything I need to know. I'm still under 18 at this point. And um, I released my first single on my own. And two years at Avatar, which was great. Released my first single on, on my own in 1982. So I was probably... 18. Um, yeah, and my record company that I worked at were quite unhappy with me because when I was 19, uh, 18, I was by now, I'd gone from being a motorcycle messenger to being head of press and promotions. I'm still 18. And we're doing, we're, we're breaking major films. <laughs> you can make it up. We had major records on the label and uh, I was in charge of press and promotion. I'm 18 years old. And... Um, my boss was really cross with me because there was a double price spread on me in the Daily Mirror in 1982. And he wasn't very happy about that because it was more press about myself yeah. that I was getting than press for his artist. So we parted by mutual consent. He's still, he was a bit of a mentor to me and we're still friends now, you know. Um, but that was all I needed to know. Um, from there, I got asked to go and work at MCA Music and I hated it. Major companies are very, very different. They're not interested in music, they're interested in they could be interested in selling washing machines. They really yeah. don't give a shit. So I spent five weeks there and quit. 
and that was probably the last PAYE job I've had. Since then, I've worked for myself or as a consultant for other record labels like Polydor. So did you, am I right in saying you, you've done some work with Stiff? Yeah, Stiff approached me and... <laughs> fucking hell, I haven't even talked about the fanzine yet. I ran a fanzine with a guy called Terry Rawlings, who's an author. Uh, I started in 1980, and by 1983, we were selling 15,000 copies an issue. Is this mod or punk? Mod or? called Extraordinary Sensations. Yeah. Out of my... We had an office, and a dad... <laughs> mate of my, my dad's friend owned a haulage yard in Dagenham, which was like a wasteland at the time. It had been yeah. flattened during the war because it was near the Ford's plant the Germans were always trying to get. Nothing there at all. It was just industrial estate after run-down industrial estate. And we had an office there. So we used to go in every day and make this fanzine. And it became <laughs> very successful. By issue 7 or 8, we were doing 5,000. By issue 12, we were 13,000 copies and... By 14, I think we probably peaked at about 15,000 copies worldwide. That's crackers. Um, I've just, my first book uh, called Modzines, The History of Mod Fanzines, with uh, mate Michael Steve Rowland, is out next month, which is October the 26th, on Omnibus Press. So uh, that's the first actual book I've ever published. Uh, that's about the history of mod fanzines. So, but anyway, Stiff Records approached me and said, me and Rawlings, no, I'll tell you what happened. Um, we had a really good... We got, uh, I was already running my own label, and we get sent a demo tape from America, a band called The Untouchables, who were a soul-scar mod band, multi-race, you know, black and white, um, and they were fantastic. And I knew it was too big for us to put out on my little label. You know, the first single we... I sent a tape and some Letraset artwork away to an advert in the enemy and a cheque for 120 quid, and I got 1,000 records back. So I think it was a bit big for us. Yeah. So Rawlings knew someone at Stiff. We took it into Stiff. Stiff said, well, put it out, and it got in the charts. And then they had three or four hit records and a hit album. So Stiff were like, OK, you, we want you to work here. We said, we'd rather have our own label through Stiff. So they set us up with an office 100 yards from here in Shoreditch, which is how I got to know Hoxton in... This was in 1984. And we had three happy years working with Stiff until Stiff went bankrupt in 87, by which time I set up Passengers. Right. It's basically how it happened. It's all concertinated into a nutshell. You've got to read my book if you want to get the proper story. <laughs> right, we'll, we, we'll, we'll, we'll drop back onto Acid Jazz then and, and, and the Blue Note um, after track six, which is... Um, Favourite song from an artist from your home county? Home county or hometown? Town, I guess, yeah. Okay, well, that was... It could have been Amigo by uh, Black Slate, because they live just... Some of them live just down the road from me in Woodford. Oh, I um, that. Apparently. That was the legend, anyway. Right. Those three rasters that live in that flat up on that tower block, right. they're in Black Slate. I still play that record out now. I just yeah. think it's such a wonderful record. But I think you said hometown. And the only band I know that are from Harlow now that are still going are Eddie and the Hot Rods. And Do Anything You Want to Do is such an important record. Again, to me, it was on the border of punk and kind of rock. It's just such a fantastic record. I mean, I challenge, I dare anyone to not have that record stuck in their head if they listen yeah. to it. It's an amazing record. Yeah. And my son's mate at school's dad... 
is in Eddie and the Hot Rods and has yeah. been since 1980. So they immediately sprung into my head. I, I've always loved this record. I know all the words. Yeah. If I was to do karaoke, it's one of three songs I'd do. Yeah. One of them, I think thanks Dave Higgs was in the Hot Rods. He, uh, he owns a, a, record, a rehearsal studio in, in Canvey. And, uh, and we used to, all our little bands, we used well, they're to originally from the, They were originally from the Essex Delta, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I know that a couple of them live in Harlow, so. Yeah, yeah. They were, I mean, that was, I, I guess it, it, it's one of them bands, as you said, it does transcend, doesn't it? Because you, you, find, you see it on, pub com, uh, on punk compilations, but it was also that whole feel-good scene, and it was sort of, you know, bundled in with that. The, the kind well, if of you look at Barry Masters, the vocalist, he doesn't particularly look like a punk. No. He's got a little bit of a mullet going on. And a lot of those early punk bands did look like that because that's what everyone looked like in the, mm. in the rock music scene at the time. Not everyone was walking about looking like Sid Vicious or yeah. having a stupid Mohican haircut, yeah. you know. Um, and they kind of did look like that. Jesse Hector... Um, from Hammersmith Gorillas was another one that looked a bit like that, but he looked absolutely fantastic. Mm. And you see, do anything you want to do on top of the pops at the time, and listen to what was on next to it, ABBA, yeah. or you know, like save your kisses for me. I was just about to say brother or the man. I mean, you know, <laughs> and, and you just think that's what I want to do. Yeah. They had yeah. a bit of fire in their belly, God, didn't they? Crikey, yeah. Oh, I right. don't forget their, their sleeve. They had a single sleeve with a, someone with a rope round his neck. I thought well, that was always a that's bit right. fucking hardcore. Anyway, sorry. So, um, Acid Jazz, so you, you've left Stiff and, and you've obviously you've put a few records out yourself and, and you, you've now thinking, right, I'm going to up my game here and, 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 you know, and you set it up with Giles, was it? I'll tell you exactly what happened again. Um, Stiff went bust. I didn't want to leave Stiff. We were very happy there. Um, and Terry had had enough. Terry Rawl is my partner, had had enough of records. So I went back in and put out my own records, and I did uh, a bit of jazz. You know, I was more, in, more into jazz in the last years of being a mod. And so I had made the James Taylor Quartet's first record, I signed Steve White's band, the Jazz Renegades, made a few other jazz records. And um, John Peel really picked up on JTQ, the first single, and he phoned me up and said, do you want to do a session? And I didn't have the heart to tell him that there wasn't a band. James Taylor had already left the country and was living in Sweden. And, um, you know, he'd just done me a few demos before he disappeared as a favour because I kept begging him to. And so I managed to eventually persuade James to come back. And the single got in the indie charts. It was in Peel's Festive 50 for years. And I'd run this out in my front room in Woodford. And um, so James came back and he made me an album of film TV themes from the 60s. And called, the album was called Mission Impossible. And, you know, Giles Peterson was running the big jazz scene. I didn't really know him. I'd been to see him DJ a few times. And so I just sent him a record. Now, every week, he used to play four new releases. That's how big the underground jazz scene was at the time. You could choose four new releases a week. You couldn't do that now. Yeah. One a month, if you're lucky. Anyway, he really didn't like it. I didn't know him, you know, but he played it. I went along to see him play it to see what the phone vote was. And, and, and where was this? And, and this was at Radio London, BBC right. Radio London. Mad on Jazz was his programme. And uh, he couldn't believe it. It won the public vote. And basically, James Taylor was like four punk musicians playing jazz. They, you know, it wasn't Giles' world of like American kind of cool yeah. jazz dance, the Snowboys kind of scene. Yeah. Um, so if it won the public vote, he had to play it next week. Now to continue, and it won for about four times. And then um, obviously going along four times, got to know Giles and you know, all his mates. 
and we formed, became part of a kind of a jazz scene. I got to warm up for Giles at the Wang Club and uh, as a DJ, and this was a really good experience for me because I'd only really DJed Northern Soul up to that point in mm. time. And so to start having to watch Giles, he was the best DJ in the world from about 80, 85 to 90, 92, until he decided to no longer play old records. I think he was the best DJ I've ever seen, a fearless DJ who was just extraordinary, had great charisma and personality. We got to be quite good mates. He moved into Terry Rawlings' flat. Um, and uh, yeah, so a natural fit. We had a lot of mates that were making music. I'd already managing James Taylor at Polydor, where I also worked as a consultant for Urban Records. And um, Charles said, oh, I want to make a record for my roadie, Rob Gallagher. And that was the Galliano record. Right. I, knew, I knew how to put a record out, so we did it together. We were only going to do a couple of tunes. We were trying to think of a name for the label. And I think Chris Bangs came up. It was a joke. The whole thing was a joke, you know. Acid jazz. It could have been Wild Wild Funk. That was the other yeah. alternative. We got a mate was going on holiday to New York. We got them to post all the singles back from New York as review copies. And they got reviewed as an American jazz rap icon called Galliano. <laughs> you couldn't have made it up. And uh, to our immense surprise, we sold 15,000 copies in a couple of months. That's very difficult to do with no distribution. Yeah. We had a, a sales deal with uh, Soul Trader, Mark Lester's company, who are now based in Brighton. And he just took it round in a van in the West End. But there was 100 record shops in the West End in those days because everyone came to Soho to buy their records. Yeah. If each shop takes 50 copies, you've done 5,000 units, you know? So this carried on for like three or four months. We were selling this, this kind of records. It was all over the radio. And Acid Jazz was born. And we were only ever going to do three records. But after kind of... I think a man called Adam got to number one in the club chart, number two with Earthly Powers, which was also a hard ask, actually, mm. to get that high in the club chart when you're competing against House, yeah. which is massive. Um, that was it. I decided we had to keep going. After a year, Giles got a bit pissed off with the retro nature of my musical taste, mm -hmm. so he left us up talking loud. Yeah. But that was even better for me because we had competition. Yeah. So, you know, it was almost like Blur and Oasis. Yeah, uh, yeah, talk, yeah, yeah. That's jazz talking loud. Now, fortunately for us, most of the fans would like both labels because it was kind of very similar music. Yeah, yeah. But in the end, we won. And I think we won because we'd signed the brand new heavies in Jamiroquai. Yeah. You know, between them, they sold over 45 million records. Yeah. You know, it's quite a lot. That's all right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, I, I mean, the thing is as well, like... It wasn't just a label, was it? It'd become a scene. Yeah, people, well... To, to, to talk scene. about it from, from my, my perspective, I'm, I'm going to talk about the, the, the Pink Toothbrush here, yeah. which was an indie club. It's always been a, an alternative indie rock club. And all of a sudden, we're playing acid jazz records. And, you know, we'd always put on Snowboy because he was our mate and he lived around the corner. But then all of a sudden, we'd have James all the time would come down and play. And... Mother Earth and Cordroy and, and it was it was one it, it, it just it crossed over and, and, and I think you know all of a sudden on our flyers it was like indie rock and roll acid jazz and it was like not not even thinking of it as the label just as, as, a, as, a, as a sound do you know what I mean well I think it was very easy to confuse the two because yeah. when we started there was nobody else in the world doing this kind of music yeah. So when I think the first journalist was John Godfrey and ID, 
when he was looking for a name for the scene, he just called it the name of the record label because it kind of makes sense. Yeah. But I think that was also a downfall, you know, after three or four years. And I'll tell you why. Britpop came along and smashed it out of the water because yeah. these scenes are only really in the public spotlight for two or three years. Now yeah. they become old and unfashionable. Yeah. But we really enjoyed it. was the biggest thing. It was bigger than Acid House, actually, mm. because it, it, tra- it, it cracked America, yeah. cracked Japan, Australia. We had chart hits in Australia constantly. I mean, you couldn't make it up. There were these scenes, and a lot of them came out of the global mod scene. Yeah. It's the natural progression for mods to make, and most of them came with us. Yeah. So the organisers, and mods were really organised. Their own little scenes, they had their own little clubs and fanzines all around the world. Mm. So if all these guys made a step forward with us, mm. it gave us a natural market around the world, from Greece to, to bloody anywhere. And you yeah. name a country, it had an acid jazz scene. And now there's, there was a bar called Totally Wide in Indonesia. You know what I mean? You know, that was... Yeah. Anyway, there you go. I'm getting a bit excited now. I shouldn't. <laughs> well, look, um, before we get on to the last track, um, I want to know a little bit about Blue Note. <sighs> it's something I don't like talking about. Because, oh, really? Yeah, because, um, first of all, no one really remembers it. And when I say, for example, I did not, when uh, The Guardian interviewed me about the Blue Note, and I, I told the story of the Blue Note. And uh, in the Guardian, they have a comment online, they have a comment section. People are just going, you're a liar. You know, you, this is not true. You didn't invent Hoxton. We didn't invent Hoxton at all. All we did, but well, we were the first proper club to successfully work in Shoreditch and Hoxton. When yeah. we moved in, Hoxton Square had six bomb sites that hadn't been developed since the Second World War. Yep. It was the, one of the poorest areas of London. It was a home for gangsters. My dad was born 100 yards away and was a bookmaker, so he was very aware of gangsters. And yeah. he said, do not open a club there, son. You will regret it. But what had happened, Stiff Records had an office very close to the previous club, the Bass Club. Uh, the Bass Club went bankrupt because nobody went to it. And I bought it off the receiver. It had been closed for a couple of years. It was a state. It had to be rebuilt. And I rebuilt it. And for the first few months, it didn't work. And I'm thinking, you know, I spent a million and a half pounds on this. I'm thinking, this is a big mistake here. And then something happened. Dave Swindell was the timeout. Correspond, club correspondent and uh, Jack Peretti, the Guardian Guide correspondent, were very much behind it. And I had a really good artistic team. I wanted to make a nightclub like a record label. And I'll explain what I mean by that. At this point in time, the Ministry of Sound had just opened. Every other club in London was playing techno. Right? This was about 92, 93. You couldn't go anywhere else and not hear techno. You know, that was it. And to be honest, give me five minutes of techno and I want to... Well, I don't want to be in the club, put it that way. So I came up with this idea to run a club with every kind of music that I loved and every kind of music that wasn't getting anywhere to play. So we had a dub reggae night with Abishanti. We had an Asian fusion night with Talvin Singh, you know, which was very, very big. We had uh, Cold Cut did did a night there. Um, James Lavelle did Dusted there. Um, Andy Weverall did a night there. So we got all the best people. We had a magic bus, which was the Acid Jazz in-house night. We did Fridays there. Um, And after a little while, this worked to the point that we were sold out seven nights a week. And we would have to operate a one-in-one-out policy. 
we was full up by midnight. We had a five o'clock licence. And people would queue up till four in the morning just to get in for the last half hour. I mean, you couldn't... You wouldn't get that today. Oh. 200 people outside, three, four nights a week. Yeah. Uh, but this one was fine because there was no residents. Yeah. Nobody lived there. There were no businesses there. There was... When we opened, there was a coffee shop around the corner, a taxi office next to the club. They must have made a million pounds out of us opening. Um... But the news agent didn't even have a shop window. It had a shutter, you know, just round the corner on the on Shoreditch High Street. Yep. It had a shutter. The pl- there was one pub, the Bricklayers Arms, that was about 200 yards from the Blue Note, and there was London's largest gay club, the London Apprentice, yep. next door. And so we things started to change. That was that become free, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. As yeah. soon as the Blue Note closed, the evil hag that owned that club stopped being kicked all the gays out and started running a night that was a club that copied the Blue Note and tried to steal a lot of our former nights, you know. Mm. Um, and I think she had quite a lot to do with the club closing, to be honest. However, it's a very long and convoluted story which I won't bore you about, other than I was asked to pay a bribe, which I neglected or failed on principle to do. And f- I made an enemy at the council who was quite high up, and he spent six years trying to close this down, and eventually he succeeded. Um, but the other thing, what gave him the ammunition was, because Hodgson started to be talked about, people started, rich people, started getting rid of the squatters, getting rid of the live-work artist spaces, turning them into luxury flats, because they wanted to be where the new cultural centre of London was. And they got onto the council, and they started petitions, they started campaigns. Um, It was weird, because Hoxton was one of London's poorest areas, with a very high BNP vote. You know, probably just under that in the Isle of Dogs. And we were bringing multi-ethnic uh, mixed communities into this area and the white residents didn't like it. So you had the poor working class people really against us and you had the rich people that have moved in because it's now you can buy a big flat for under yeah. grand you know, and turn it into a luxury apartment. And so we, you know, we were on a hiding to nothing. And I think they thought if we can get rid of this club, it will be nice and quiet around here. What it did was it opened the the floodgates to hell and I now I DJ in Shoreditch very occasionally when I do I like to go for a walk around and it's like Sodom and Gomorrah not only have you got a very good chance of being robbed one of the DJs uh, a gig I did a month ago was robbed at Knife Point between Shoreditch the club and Liverpool Street Station he's carrying two boxes of records knife to his throat and the other thing is you just encounter people you wouldn't want to spend any time with, vomiting in the street. That, you know, for example, a club I DJ at very recently had every single window put through and two bouncers put in hospital because they asked the drunk bloke to leave. You know, it's not the kind of place I like to go anymore. And I'm afraid a lot of that is to do with the floodgates that were opened by the closure of the Blue Note and the dumbing down of Hoxton into what was an area for artists and musicians with a brilliant club to being somewhere where you get people who come in from Kent and Essex and just want to vomit and fight. And that, unfortunately, has killed it for me. It's, uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Eddie. It's, um, I've worked here for, well, nine years now, and I come up here maybe three months ago, just, just come up here with, with wife and children and on, a, on a Saturday afternoon and uh, literally walked past eight or nine steak and Hindus and it was like and it was all I come up here to work because I didn't want to do all my nights in Essex because 
it, it wasn't, yep. you know, and, and that's taking nothing away from a lot of people. Essex like, used to be so in. cool. But I wanted, it to, I wanted something a little bit more bohemian, something a little bit more colourful and interesting and, and, and arty. And I know that sounds a bit wanky, but that's, that's what I wanted. And I can't find that here anymore. Well, we're now onto the curse of the free world, yeah. which is the stag and hen night. They have destroyed the cultural centre of Dublin, Temple Bar. Yeah. If you go there now, it's the same. You go to Prague, you can't even go to Ibiza, go anywhere. And it's just full of these prats wearing bright, and men wearing fucking fancy dress. Mate, you don't look funny. Please grow up. Yeah. But they don't grow up, they just want to beat people yeah. up. Great, Can you enjoy your life. Do you know what, mate? I, I, um, I took the kids on a road trip, we went up to Scotland. And on the way back, I said to my missus, let's pop into York. It's meant to be beautiful now. And I got into York at about three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, we parked the car. So come, we're going, we're going to do all the tourist bits. We're going to walk around the wall and all of that. And, you know, go and see this, this beautiful, historic town city. And uh, outside every pub was two doormen. I'm a club promoter. So, I, you know, I was thinking, why is there a doorman on a Saturday afternoon in a historic city fucking violence and hens and stags in the middle of York was fucking off the scale yeah. like, literally I said my missus can't go back to the hotel I said this ain't no good and it was literally just scrapping in the streets and like, it was like oh man like what's can't people just go and have a good time do you know what I mean it's like weren't good weren't good I mean, there's lots of socio-political reasons why this has happened, but we don't need to go into it now. But it really has killed clubbing and killed culture for me. Everywhere you think of going... I mean, you know, because I DJ abroad most weekends, I find myself... Promoters always book the cheap flights. So I find myself at Stansted at about 8 in the morning, 7 in the morning, and there's blokes dressed as frogmen, blokes dressed as ballet dancers, blokes dressed as Orville the Duck like with 15 burly mates all wearing stag t-shirts. And then there's the Harridans that are already pissed on Lambrini at seven in the morning wearing Mother of the Bride, you know, and it's just like, just fuck off. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, there <laughs> you go. Ball, That'll be it. I can't wait to retire. <laughs> right, and if you last track, um, a song that many may not know that you would like them to, to listen to. Now, I've got no idea what I said here because it would have been something that was on my mind following the Bournemouth Soul Weekend. So what, what have I said? Chains by Blacks and Blues. Okay, there's a good reason for saying this. That album that I mentioned earlier, Martin Freeman and Eddie Pillar presents Jazz on the Corner. Um, it's really difficult doing a jazz album and choosing material that hasn't been comped to death because there's so many compilations out there, most of them are crap. Mm -hmm. Me and Martin had to look quite hard for things that aren't overused. Now, the reason this wasn't overused, this is on that album. Uh, it's by Blacks and Blues, which is Gil Scott Heron's college band. Okay. Um, the master tapes were found in a studio um, called Flying Dutchman in the States by my partner in us, Jazz, Dean Rutherland. And we couldn't believe that they'd never come out because if you listen to them, they're as good as anything Gil did. Gil's one of my favourite songwriters and singers of all time. Beautiful singer. Beautiful songs, socio-politically fantastic. And... He's not even on lead vocals on this. Mm. You know, he's, he's the backing singer and the keyboard player. But um, as soon as that, Dean, Dean found them, they'd never come out. So we thought, well, look, we'll put one of them on the Eddie Pillar and Martin Freeman. So if you like Gil, you will absolutely love Blacks and Blues. Okay, okay. Um, how did you 
end up with Martin? How did you, you know, how did you become friends? Me and Martin have been mates for donkey's years. We bumped into each other at a gig. He expressed a love for one of my productions. In fact, he asked me a question. Is the Brand New Heavies Blue, in, Blue album influenced by the Mizell Brothers production techniques? And that's a technical question for anyone interested in jazz and soul. And the answer I had was, yeah, they are. Now, I didn't know about The Office. Yeah. I wasn't particularly aware of Martin. I recognise his face, as you often do with actors. Yeah. But I didn't really know what he'd done. So he wasn't as famous as he is now. Yeah. And we just got to be good mates. And if, if you get to be mates with someone who's extraordinarily famous before they're famous, it's okay. Mm. But if you, you know, the trouble with for Martin now is he can't walk down the street without being stopped 10 times for selfies. Yeah. And it must be really difficult for him. I mean, obviously he's traded his fame for success and money, you know, his, his privacy for success privacy, and money. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, we're just really good mates and we go out for a drink every so often. In fact, I'm meeting him on Thursday for a chat. So he's just a good mate of mine. Yeah. Fantastic. It helps having a Hollywood A-lister to do a compilation album with you, though. Yeah, it yeah does. I can imagine. Um, podcast, you were ahead of the game on that as well, really, weren't you? Well, I did 54, I think, and then we thought we'd take a break. But um, Sarah Bolshe, who I run the podcast with, has persuaded me to start doing it again, but with a slightly different format. We're going to do it with one guest and half an hour instead of two or three guests and an hour because with two, two or three guests one always is a bit more dominant than the others and you know so we're thinking a lot shorter and more specific get people in there talking about one thing but the podcast I mean at its peak we had 17,000 iTunes subscribers plus another couple of thousand Mixcloud and, um, and some Soundcloud so we probably had 25,000 people listening to it all over mate. the world but we had guests of real <laughs> You know, we had Martin Freeman, yeah. Sir Bradley Wiggins, um, Mick Talbot, you know, Gino Washington. We had some major mod influence people. Yeah. And Bradley Wiggins was an extraordinary interview. You know, the thing I learned about Bradley by doing that, which he'd never talked about before, which I somehow managed to get it out of him, was that he was standing next to the headmaster who was murdered by the chap called Chindamo in, uh, in uh, Maida Vale, I think it was, where Bradley was going to school. He was in... He was standing next to the headmaster at the time when that gang kid stabbed the headmaster in the heart. Do you remember the kid? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. I mean, it must have massively traumatised him and he must have blanked it out because I'd never heard him mention it before. No. You know, and I think I asked him a question about how was your time at school? And he said, well, you know, that kind of sport it a bit. Yeah. So I, I massively admire Bradley Wiggins. I think he's one of the most focused people I've ever met in my life. And to do what he's achieved, and he's very funny. Yeah. He's a very funny man, although he's not as funny on the microphone as he is off the microphone yeah. because he's had media training. Yeah. And if you open the door too much, especially if you're, if you're irreverent and taking the piss, yeah. it will come back to bite you on the backside. Yeah. You know. Okay. So, today, Eddie, you still in Essex? Yeah, still in Harlow. Love it. So, what's an average day for you now, mate? Get up at 7 o'clock, do a bit of e-band, buy a bit of records on Discogs, go to the office, uh, and then at weekends I go and DJ. You know, sometimes in the week as well. Nice, nice. Eddie, thanks loads for coming down and doing this, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, mate. And uh, yeah, where can people find out what you're up to? Uh, Acid Jazz, Facebook probably. Acid Jazz, Facebook. Yeah. We, we'll tag you in all the things when we put this out. Okay, well thanks. 
Thanks, Thanks for again, having mate. me. Sorry, I talked too much. That's mate, you've made my life really easy today. It was lovely. Excellent. <coughs> Thank you, Eddie. There you go. Off the beaten track with Eddie Pillar. What a fascinating man. Um, we, we, we carried on chatting afterwards and I was just keen to kind of milk every possible nerdy, geeky bit of music knowledge out of Eddie. Um, you know, I think by now you, you're probably aware that I'm a real geek for music and, and it was nice just to be in the company of someone that's been involved in so many different parts of it and yeah, an absolute pleasure. Um, thanks ever so much for listening. Um, what might make life easier for you all is if you just subscribe, then each week these podcasts will just pop up on your listening device and then it's down to you if you wish to uh, listen or not. If you like music and people talking about music, have a look in the back catalogue if this is the first one you've listened to and you'll, you'll find episodes from Scribius Pip, Block Party, Mark Moore of S Express and I, I'm not going to list the locks, we'll be here forever, but there's plenty. And you can find out all about everything that we're doing at www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, Stu Whiffin. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.